Welcome to One Step Ahead. Technological innovation and the need to live more sustainably are profoundly reshaping how we travel, work and play. In this podcast, business leaders and industry disruptors break down how they're adapting to these trends, preparing for what's next and helping to build a brighter future for our planet. One Step Ahead is brought to you by Amundi ETF, the European champion of exchange-traded funds. To learn more about how you can keep your investments ahead of change, visit amundietf.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice and or an offer to buy financial products. Hello, I'm Libby Potter, and in this episode of One Step Ahead, we'll be learning about RNA interference. It's a groundbreaking technique with the potential to treat certain genetic disorders. RNA interference works by selectively silencing certain genes to potentially help fight disease and restore patient health and quality of life. We're joined by an expert on the matter, Doug Fambra, who is the CEO and president at Dicerna Pharmaceuticals, a Massachusetts-based biopharmaceutical company specialising in RNA interference. Hello, Doug, and welcome. Hello. The phrase, we interfere, is repeated in many places on Dicerna's website. To start us off, can you explain to our listeners what it is that you mean by that? I'd be happy to explain. We intended that phrase to be a little startling and a little unusual to, to capture attention. Uh, at Dicerna, we interfere, we interfere with disease. Disease processes uh, divert people from their normal life in terrible ways, and we want to interfere with the ability of the disease to do that. The phrase plays off the name of the technology we use, which is called RNA interference. And so for those uh, sort of technically in the know, it's a play on the word interfere, but it's designed to sort of grab your attention and show that we're interfering with disease. That's what we do to try and restore health. So there's been a lot of buzz around advances in healthcare innovation and genomics with terminology like mRNA, gene therapy, gene editing, all making headlines, um, particularly obviously with COVID-19 vaccines. So would you mind briefly explaining the differences between these concepts and how Dicerna, how your gene silencing approach is different? Sure, I'd be happy to. This is, of course, gets fairly technically complicated. So let me try and put it in a context that I think everyone can understand. I think uh, we all know the machinery of our body that, that operates every day. It's primarily made of proteins. They, they build and operate the machine of our body. But then we have a genetic code or the instruction set that encodes uh, all the directions to make all of these proteins. And you can think of our, our genome, this genetic instruction set, as an enormous recipe book with 20 to 30,000 pages and a recipe on each page to make a protein. Now, if you think of the, that as a recipe book and each protein is maybe a, a dish that's made, uh, you could never bring a book that big to the kitchen counter. So uh, you have to make a copy of a page and bring it over to the counter in order to make the, the protein. Now, traditionally, drugs were made to interfere with the actual machinery, to, to interact with the proteins that are made. But all of the technologies you mentioned are about instead looking at the genetic instruction set. And they either work on that big recipe book of 20 to 30,000 genes or on the copy that's made of the, of the particular page 
uh, that is uh, then taken out to, to actually make the protein. And so let me go through the four technologies very quickly uh, to show where in this process that they work. We'll start with mRNA because I think uh, with COVID on top of mind for everybody, the mRNA vaccines have gotten a tremendous amount of press. mRNA is the copy that's made of one page of the recipe book of the genome uh, to encode for a specific protein. And so what an mRNA companies do is they provide a copy from the outside. Uh, in the case of the vaccines, they provide a copy of a viral protein and that your body then makes into the viral protein so your immune system can recognize it. Now, it's not the full virus, so it's, uh, it's not infectious. But this is good for when a patient is missing a gene. You can put uh, the copy for that gene back in so the protein could be made. Or if you need more of the activity of one gene, if you're low on a hormone or something, you can put in the copy and make more of the hormone. Now, what we do is the flip side of that. If you have too much of one of the genes, RNA interference disrupts the ability to read out the copy of the gene. In fact, sometimes it's called gene silencing. It prevents the gene from being made into the protein. Now, a lot of common diseases, whether it's cardiovascular diseases or, you know, frankly, acid stomach or autoimmune diseases or inflammatory diseases, they involve where there's too much of a biological process going on. So many of, this, many of these diseases can be treated by turning off one of the genes involved to turn down the process. The other technologies you mentioned, they operate on the instruction set itself. Now the instruction set is permanent. The copies are transitory. So um, when you inter intervene with the copies with mRNA or RNA interference, it lasts for a little while, then it fades away and you have to give the drug again. But technologies that work on the instruction set, they're lifelong and permanent. So one would want to be very careful. Gene therapy, as it's uh, normally called, is basically putting a new page into the genome. And so if one of the pages is missing or just uh, damaged so that it doesn't function properly, you can put a brand new page in, an extra page that replaces the, the defective page. This is particularly good for genetic diseases where a gene is missing or someone inherits a defective copy of a gene from both parents. Many of these diseases are severe and show up uh, early in life and are lifelong. So doing an early fix is a great way to think about uh, those diseases. And gene therapy, that's really its sweet spot, uh, genetic diseases. The last technology, which is the newest and youngest uh, and has no approved products today, unlike the other three, is the gene editing. And that is going in and actually kind of literally editing the words on the individual pages. Now, one simple way to edit is just to kind of erase stuff and take a page and, and break it. Um, that's a bit like RNA interference in that you turn the gene off by breaking it at the instruction set level. Uh, and that would be lifelong. Again, that was something you probably want to do in genetic diseases because uh, in, in particular cases. And the other way to do it, which is a little harder and a little earlier in the technology development process, is actually fix a mistake. So take a page that was uh, incorrectly written and make it uh, the proper 
code again. So with mRNA, we have the mRNA vaccines approved and there are drugs on the way. With RNA interference, we have uh, multiple approved drugs. With gene therapy, there's some approved drugs and many in development. And with the gene editing, those drugs are just starting early development and it'll likely be several years before there's anything of that uh, sophisticated version that's on the market. So we can turn off or on at the mRNA level, the copy level, or we can turn off or on at the genetic code DNA level. It's completely fascinating. Uh, I'm sort of in awe of the work that you guys do. Um, could you talk about exactly how you go about developing these RNAi-based therapies? Well, one of the main reasons that it's been so productive to shift from focusing on the proteins and that, that machinery to the genetic code is that uh, all of the genes are, are sort of coded out in the same way. And so if you figure out how to interfere with one gene, you figured out how to interfere with any gene. And then you can just sort of change the letters to target it to the specific gene you want. You solve the technology problem once, and then you uh, then can just tune it to any gene you want. When it was uh, the old way of targeting proteins, Every protein was different. Everyone required its own re-engineering. So we spent many years, the Dicerna as a company is 14 years old. We spent many years developing technology, learning how to instruct the body to silence individual genes or interfere with the expression of individual genes. And we optimized that first for genes that are expressed in the liver and there are technical reasons why uh, the liver was the place to start. Now for many tissues in the body. And having done it once, we can then sort of tune it to individual genes we want. That allowed us, after that first breakthrough success, to uh, start to target many, many genes. And we now have over a dozen projects that are in development. And over the next couple of years, we'll probably have about a dozen more, and we expect that rate to continue. It's a real acceleration of the development of new therapies in the industry by figuring out how to target either the copies or the recipe book uh, in the genome. So can you give us a few examples of these RNAi-based therapies that, that are actually in development at the moment? Uh, I'd be happy to. I mean, just uh, talking about what we're doing, we recently read out a pivotal clinical trial in a rare disease called primary hyperoxaluria. It was successful for primary hyperoxaluria type 1. We expect to submit this drug for approval and for it to be used uh, in, in patients in the market uh, uh, within about a year or so. Um, what is it? This, what is that disease? How does it present? What are the symptoms? Yeah, this of it? is a very serious uh, genetic disease, a uh, case where you get a defective copy from both parents. But if you turn off a second gene, you can fix the problem with not having the first gene. This is a disease where the patients, in their sort of normal metabolism, uh, produce way too much of one particular metabolite. Now, we only have a tiny bit of this metabolite, it's fine. When you have a lot of this metabolite, however, um, you excrete it in your urine, and the problem is when you have a lot, it forms crystals, like little salt crystals, and they uh, embed in your kidney, and it destroys the kidney. It essentially calcifies or, or the, the kidney. It sort of literally mineralizes the kidney and leads to kidney failure. Uh, the only way to treat this disease is to replace the kidney, but also replace the liver, which is the source of the excess uh, metabolite. So current treatment is a dual liver kidney transplant 
It's a very challenging surgery. It's really only done in advanced cases. But we, with RNA interference, with a simple once a month drug that has a very safe profile, can turn off the production of that metabolite and restore normal metabolism and really stop the progression of the disease in its tracks. That's what we showed in our clinical trial. So we're very excited. This is like a, a cure. People still have the disease, but if they take the drug, they won't have any progression of the symptoms of the disease. So uh, that's the starting point. Uh, now that's our ultra-orphan disease. Our second most advanced program is really the other end of the spectrum. It's treating uh, a liver virus known as hepatitis B virus. Now there are literally over 200 million people globally with chronic hepatitis B virus wow. that destroys liver function and leads to liver cancer. And we can use our RNA interference to turn off the viral genes and make it so the virus can no longer replicate and uh, progress its, its destruction of the liver. So there's an application of our technology to rare diseases as well as very common diseases. We're working on additional uh, programs as well. We're doing clinical trials on a disease called alpha-1 antitrypsin-related uh, liver disease. That's a case where a, a gene is uh, creates a, a, essentially a rogue protein that causes liver damage, and we turn off the rogue protein. And interestingly, we're also working on alcohol abuse uh, by um, interfering with the way alcohol is metabolized in patients and really make alcohol drinking not the pleasant experience that it, it can be for uh, a healthy recreational drinker, but uh, make it such that if you have difficulty controlling your alcohol intake, this will help you to choose to stop and not over drink. Um, because our drugs last for a long time, it could be really helpful for someone to take this and then for a number of weeks, it'll help them say no when they need to say no to uh, additional drinks or any drinks at all uh, and hopefully help people rein in their drinking who have alcohol use disorder. We're also working on uh, programs that are not yet in clinical trials and a whole series of areas involving tissues around the body. As I mentioned, there are currently um, more than a dozen programs in development. We also work with pharmaceutical companies like Eli Lilly and Roche and Novo Nordisk on conditions affecting the liver, such as a condition called NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, as well as heart disease cholesterol-related conditions. So um, there's a tremendous amount you can do with the technology and that we are doing both ourselves and with our pharmaceutical partners. Wow. So for a technology that seems so niche and so new and groundbreaking, there's a massive amount of people that you can actually reach out to with this, isn't there? Can you give any real life examples of people who have already benefited from your work? You know, we have a really neat example from one of our clinical trials that I'd like to talk about. When we started testing this kidney disease drug, uh, of course, when you do a clinical trial, you want to show that your drug is more beneficial than not using your drug. And so you enroll people in your clinical trial and you have some that don't get the drug and some who do, and you don't know who's who. So this patient was in our trial and her disease was steadily progressing and she went into kidney failure. Uh, so she had to come out of the clinical trial, go on dialysis and go on the liver kidney transplant list. Now, 
When she came out of the trial, we looked to see, and sure enough, she wasn't getting the drug. She was getting the placebo, so she wasn't getting treatment. So we um, offered her treatment on a compassionate use basis, and when she started taking the drug, her toxic metabolite levels went way down. They went back down to right about the normal range, and she came off the liver transplant list and now only needs the much simpler kidney transplant and won't have the terrible surgery and lifelong complications of a liver transplant and has a very different prognosis going forward. So it's really kind of the proof in the, in the clinical trial that you can have a profound impact on this, on this patient's life and shows there's a really strong benefit of the drug that you, you just don't get if you don't have the drug. That must have been a very satisfying day at work when you realized you could do that. Yeah, indeed. So whereabouts in the journey from preclinical trials to clinical trials to commercialization are you with some of these treatments? It's a long road, isn't it? So where are you at the moment? So for that kidney drug, we have completed the clinical trials in order to submit the drug for approval and then use uh, prescribing by physicians out to any patient that might need the drug. Uh, We're getting that filing together. There's a huge amount of safety and clinical data that we submit and and that we can manufacture the product reproducibly and, and, and purely. Uh, and then the regulators review that. It'll take about a year, but that will be the first product commercialized by us. There are a couple of other companies that work in RNA interference alongside us, and there are a small number of approved drugs there. I believe three approved drugs already, four uh, in Europe using the RNA interference technology, one in heart disease, uh, another in a a rare blood disorder, um, another in a, a neurological Uh, condition. And there are many programs progressing through the clinic. Our second most advanced drug I mentioned is for hepatitis B virus. And that is in what you would call mid-stage trials to see just how well it works. And uh, if those trials show it works quite well in uh, suppressing and allowing the body to clear the virus, then it'll go into the late stage trials with a large number of patients to prove that it's safe to use very broadly in the population. Our other trials are in an earlier stage where we're demonstrating that, yes, we can have a strong impact in lung disease, and if so, they would move to late-stage trials as well. So you've touched on this already just just now, but um, what is the potential for Dicerna to treat diseases outside of the liver? So, yes, the first programs, uh, such as this uh, kidney disorder, the toxic metabolites made by the liver, so we stop its production in the liver, and the viral disease, hepatitis B virus, is a liver virus. Uh, The liver, for a variety of reasons, is the easiest tissue to do RNA interference in. But having figured out how to make it work in liver and optimize it in liver, that really taught us how we could modify the technology in fairly subtle ways in order to get to other tissues in the body, such as lung tissue and liver tissue and fat tissue and tissues or cells that are part of the immune system. And that opens up a huge variety of indications. also the central nervous system for diseases like chronic pain or neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. Um, There are far more applications of the technology than Dicerna could do on our own. And that's why we have collaborations with companies like Roche and Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk to move into these other therapeutic areas, some of which are very, very large and we couldn't do on our own. For example, the hepatitis B virus with hundreds of millions of patients globally. We're working with Roche on that program, a large global multinational with uh, global reach. 
So what about the future? So the space, genomics and healthcare innovation space, where do you see some of the biggest shifts happening in the next five to 10 or beyond years? And why should investors care about this? We are at the uh, kind of the beginning phases of the Big Bang for genetic medicine. There are so many advantages of intervening at the uh, RNA copy level or of the, the DNA level with respect to safety, with respect to the durability of the treatment, and with respect, most importantly, to the efficacy, to the uh, how well we can treat diseases. And I think we're going to see certainly starting now and increasing over the next five and 10 years, a wholesale replacement of many current therapies with genetic-based therapies, particularly for more severe diseases. And we're also gonna see many diseases that are currently untreatable or only have very ineffective treatments uh, be replaced by much more effective treatments. So we have a long-term trend that um, is no longer just scientific research. It's now really operationalized, as I mentioned, approved products and mRNA, RNA interference, and gene therapy already on the market and large pipelines of things moving through clinical trials, that we're going to see this huge expansion of the number of approved and available therapies, particularly for severe diseases. I do think of it like the early phases of the Big Bang, where it's just going to expand and expand now. Fantastic. It's very exciting to, to hear about it and, and really encouraging as well, given that um, I, I may benefit from what you do. Let's let's hope I don't have to, but maybe I will. Um, so, Doug, thank you so much. To wrap things up, could you just think about one takeaway for the listeners to keep in mind about the future of gene-based therapies? And, and what would that takeaway be? The takeaway would be, you know, I think a lot of people are a little scared of the notion that uh, you might mess around with your genetic code. But one of the really exciting things about genetic medicine is how safe it has proven relative to interfering with the machinery. And so what I would take away for people is that there's a huge amount of value because we're providing a huge amount of real tangible disease treatment value that is safe and efficacious. So there isn't anything to fear here and there's a lot to be excited about in genetic medicine and we should really welcome it. Fantastic. So before we leave, what's the best way for listeners to keep up to speed with the work of Dicerna and in general, the field of RNA interference? Well, I would direct you to our webpage, Dicerna.com or uh, at Dicerna on, on Twitter or on LinkedIn, and you can follow the, the various things that we're doing. Um, I think the, the general uh, popular scientific press does a reasonable job covering genetic medicine, uh, so whatever your favorite news source is. Uh, and of, of course, as you read about companies like Moderna or BioNTech for uh, the vaccines, ourselves or Alnylam, Arrowhead, you can look at the, the individual uh, companies. And there's some very good books out there. I'm not going to mention any particular book, but there are a number of books that have been written for the popular community about the genomic revolution, the genetic medicine revolution. And so those are, I, I've read many reviews about them and some of the books, and they're, uh, they're very good primers for uh, uh, people who don't have a PhD in genetics like I do. I'm going to have to get those titles from you afterwards, uh, Doug, because I'd be very interested to read them. So Douglas Fambra, CEO and President at Dicerna Pharmaceuticals. Thank you so much for joining. It was fascinating. Thank you, Libby. Thank you for having us today. 
Please rate, review and follow One Step Ahead wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Libby Potter. Thanks for listening. One Step Ahead is brought to you by Amundi ETF, the European champion of exchange-traded funds. To learn more about how you can keep your investments ahead of change, visit amundietf.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice and or an offer to buy financial products. Amundi ETF designates the ETF business of Amundi Asset Management. Amundi Asset Management and its affiliated companies does not in any way endorse or promote any companies or securities mentioned in this episode. The opinions expressed at the time of recording do not necessarily reflect the views of Amundi Asset Management and its affiliated companies and may vary from time to time.